Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist, and I'm joined today by our global market specialists, Giles Gale, Head of European Rate Strategy, John Briggs, Global Head of Desk Strategy, and Theo Chapsalis, Head of UK Rate Strategy. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Bondcast. Um, we had quite a volatile week this week actually, it started off uh, with a big risk-off move, which was then reversed, and then a, a couple of quiet sessions, I would say, as as we awaited the Bank of England, which um, is today as we're recording this on Thursday. So let's get straight into our um, latest thoughts on on the Bank of England. I would say I just checked out the market reaction before I before we started recording this video, and it seemed like gilts were um, a little bit confused about how to really read the message from today, I would say. Um, there were a few kind of conflicting statements. So can you kind of just well give us a run through of what was announced and whether you take this as a dovish or a hawkish meeting? Yeah, I think it's it's, it's very important more what they uh, wanted to signal rather than what they said and what they delivered. So on one hand, we have a delivery of measures that uh, if we look at them in, 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 in detail, yes, uh, you may have a reduction in, in the pace of purchase, the tapering. We, I mean, we, we did expect it. We, we got this and it got delivered. Fine. Um, we did have significantly stronger growth data, which is fine. Um, but at the same time, I think what the Bank of England signaled is, is much more important. And this is the part where uh, uh, the, the, the signaling from the bank was different to what we did expect, so to what I did expect. And to put things into context, I think what is interesting is that um, we have been expecting uh, an upward revision to the CPI projections, and we didn't get that. So the Bank of Finland says basically that, yes, there may be, there will be an increase in inflation expectations, but those will be transitory. The tightening, which is price in the market, may be fine or, you know, uh, probably a bit too much. But um, we think that this is, this will be enough to create inflation in the future that it will be lower than what they did expect it to be before, despite higher commodities, etc. So this, this is very interesting. At the same time, we have a Bank of England that um, they are very cautious not to not to not to indicate tightening, and it's very interesting that uh, Andrew Bailey they they've underlined it and they've mentioned it and they've put it in bold and all possible things that this is not a tapering. This is a technical tapering. This is not. Um, there is nothing fundamental behind that tapering. This is the important part, right? So. We're talking about a step down in the weekly pace of purchases, but not a reduction in the overall size of the envelope, which is why they're saying it's not a tapering. So is that step down really important, do you think? Um, is it important from a flows perspective? Is it important from a signaling perspective that even though it's not a reduction in the size of the overall envelope, it's clearly the first step that needs to happen towards you know, a, a tightening of, of policy? So how are we... Or how are you thinking about this kind of step down in, in purchases? I think it is it is technical. This could have been a much more uh, dovish, sorry, a much more hawkish signaling, and it could easily have been delivered in a much more hawkish way. For example, the signaling could have been stronger growth data. We are in a position where we can slow down the pace. 
things are going great. But the Bank of England didn't want to do that. They wanted to emphasize that this is very technical. Interestingly, one member, Andy Haldane, voted for a re- reduction in the in the in the stock of QE, and this is this is this is exciting. Uh, well, Haldane actually leaves, however, <laughs> from the August meeting and onwards. So. Yes, this is interesting from you know from 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 a market's point of view. But uh, does it does it change the market behavior? Uh, no. So very very important is is what happened with with CPI, and this is why when we look at our our expectations ahead of the meeting, we did expect uh, front and forward rates to uh, to rise. But you know the 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 challenge was really that if the Bank of England indeed there are. Um, they want to tell us that they are a bit hesitant. That the market obviously has to price that, and this is this is what's going on now, and this is what's going on today. So, despite stronger GDP data, despite a very healthy, very strong, a very upbeat uh, NPR report, you see front end rates actually going down. So, this is this, this is the important part. Okay, and what about your view further out the curve? You know, you've had this long-held bearish view and, and you had said last week in, in, you know, the notes that you've been publishing that you thought that this could be a meeting that was more important for the front end. So given that it's, you know, they could have been much more hawkish in their messaging, um, how does that leave your, your bearish view? Yeah, I think, uh, well, as, as, as a standard, we maintain the bearish stance at the front of the curve. We think that... Uh, we will need to be patient and we'll need to get the data to actually validate that point of view. So it is different. The Bank of England is not directly validating it, which means that, well, we um, we want to maintain the view. We like it as a theme, uh, but we need to be patient with regards to the bearish front end story. How about uh, longer maturities and, for example, the 10-year sector? Well, we think that uh, yields in that sector are also likely to rise. We have a 1% target. Uh, we maintain that target, but you know the the problem is that when when a view becomes more logical and more mainstream, which is one of the the, the points that we've faced in uh, in you know recent weeks, becomes also more difficult to move because the marginal investor who will implement that view uh, is is getting more and more scarce. So this is why I think we will need to wait. We'll need to get the data, and later this year when we will have inflation you know, close to 4% in the UK, so RPI inflation, I think that it will be a clear moment for the market to pretty much get rates uh, up also at longer maturities. Okay, that sounds good. We'll, we'll wait for that then. <laughs> um, so, John, over to the US, because um, a couple of, you know, times when we've been talking about the potential for a tapering for the Bank of England, and that was kind of the hot topic of uh, today's meeting, um, we talked about whether that would kind of put the pressure on the Fed to at least start thinking or talking about a, an earlier taper. Has today changed at all what you were thinking about the timeline for the Fed? Yeah, and I'll, I'll rephrase your question slightly because I think it was more along the lines that the markets, that Bank of England could get the markets to start thinking about the Fed. And, you know, again, we think that Fed communications are going to start until September, but if the Bank of England was aggressive or hawkish or as Theo described, not, not describing as technical, that could get people thinking about it sooner rather than later. I mean, we have to say that this, you know, probably doesn't get people all up in arms about, oh my God, the Bank of England was hawkish and, you know, cut their pace and, 
yes, Haldane talked about cutting the stock, but you know, he's stock of purchases, but he's on his way out. And yeah, so it's definitely not a sing- singular event that's going to raise that conversation. But, you know, you do have, for example, you know, Kaplan, he's a hawk, I guess, on the Fed, but he's been out talking about accelerating taper. So the conversation's there. But I also, you know, I think Theo's comment about, you know, the central bank in England trying to, you know, not express any hawkish views. It is a bit of a microcosm of some of the things that we've discussed. Also, I have to say, because I know you love it, you know, the idea that this rising bond yields is an evolution, not a revolution. It's not going to be a Q1 type event. It's something you need to be patient with. So I agree with Theo there. It applies to the US as well. You know, I mean, this is the data should continue to come in strong and kind of keep that conversation alive. But um, it is going to be more of a slow moving boat here in the in the second quarter and into the third than in the first. So it doesn't really change my thoughts on that. I mean, and importantly, just when you think about kind of other asset classes, I know it's bond cast, but let's throw it in, you know, that um, that kind of, you know, slower evolution process is, is not, makes it still a pretty good environment for, um, you know, risk taking and and in a way that feeds back into bonds where if, you know, if you're just seeing a lot of that money going into higher return assets on the margin, it means that there's going to be less of that probably flight to quality type fear. The idea that central banks are heading towards taper, but very much want to separate that rate hike conversation out of that, which is, I think, something we saw at the Bank of England. I think the Fed's going to do that, too. But, you know, for the market, market need, in my view, even if the central banks are saying that they're not going to do rate hikes for a long time, still need to price in some higher probability band that those rate hikes do come earlier. And as we see the positive data coming through and as we head through the summer, I think that's what's going to happen. So since you brought in other asset classes, I guess, you know, when we saw the big rise in yields at the beginning of the year there was a lot of talk about whether this was you know another round of a taper tantrum um and obviously it settled down quite quickly but why is it that we still think that this is you know a good environment for risk assets if we are getting closer to to starting to think or or talk about uh, a taper generally why are we more comfortable that this isn't going to be a taper tantrum and we do think that this is um, an evolution, not not a revolution. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's so it's it's inarguable that central banks, even if it's very slow, you know, starting on the process of removing accommodation, is a headwind, you know, for the liquidity scenario and for risk assets. But in my view, the headwind there is just too light compared to the strong global growth we have for the reopening. As a reminder, you know, we're about a percentage point and a half above in many economies. That's a summary rounding, but you know, we're well above consensus when it comes to growth outlooks for this year and, and into early next year. Um, you know, like I said, you still have the central. We've learned from the 2013 taper and the 2013 taper, the market got, got really worried about rate hikes, but it took three years for, you know, the first or more than almost three years for that first rate hike to come. So we kind of learned that lesson that doesn't necessarily follow on the heels. And, you know, as we've seen lately, yeah, equity markets have kind of stopped rallying, but but earnings reports have been, have been really strong. I mean, as there was a stat I heard that about, um, 80% of the companies in the US at least are beating earnings by at least 30%, which is almost historic. Now that's validating current valuations is what the you know sideways price action equities are telling you. But as long as we continue to see, you know, this you get the tailwinds of strong growth, still very accommodative central banks, maybe slightly less accommodative than they were. 
Um, and the other big difference is from past periods, we have a huge amount of fiscal stimulus in the pipe still. You know, and fiscal authorities are, are putting a lot of, um, you know, priming the economies very strongly. And there's the potential for more in the U.S., which is probably a subject for a whole other podcast. But, um, you know, there's a lot of differences now. Back in 13, we were talking about austerity. In the U.S., we had the Tea Party. So, you know, the, the, the tailwinds are just too strong, I think, um, in the near term, unless we get some risk like a new variant comes out that takes that reopening, takes that growth outlook and derails it. Okay, that makes sense. So just quickly before we move on to Europe, one last, um, I guess, topical discussion this week uh, with particular reference to the US was around the refunding announcement. Was there anything interesting in that to kind of discuss or was it a bit of a non-starter really? Yeah, it wasn't a huge amount of news there. Um, I mean, I think the one thing that people were looking for was see if there's any changes or hints that they may change the the 20 year because, um, well, two, two reasons. The issue has had some issues. It struggled at times back in February. There were some liquidity events. We saw a lot of cheapening in that sector. So there was some concern or um, maybe not concern, but there was some thought out there that maybe they would hint at reducing the size of that because you know, I don't think they necessarily introduced it at too large a size, but they did ramp up issuance in that sector pretty quickly. It's a new sector. There aren't off the runs. You know, as we move through time, we develop more of an off the run curve, but it was a little bit of a loner. So our view has been that when they move towards hopefully a place in the future where higher tax revenues and lower funding needs mean that the treasury can cut back on coupon emissions in general, that maybe they cut back on that a little bit more than perhaps their surrounding securities. So that's our view is that it's more of a down the road type story. Um, and we think the issue is going to mature and develop over time. They may have just issued a little bit too much to start, but we don't think that they need to necessarily take action and cut it because if you cut midstream and it's not surrounding the conversation of a better funding ratio, people may worry about their dedication to the sector overall. Whereas if it's within a narrative of things are looking better, so we're going to cut some 10s, we're going to cut some 20s, we're going to cut some 30s, maybe we do a little bit more in 20s, but that's a little bit, um, you know, a better narrative in which to do it around. Okay, maybe that's something we'll we'll come back to then in, in future podcasts. All right, thank you, John. So now over to Europe. And since I left him till last, I will say that it's maybe the most exciting news of the week, although I'm sure Theo will beg to differ on that. Uh, something we've discussed many times on this podcast is our... Um, uh, well, uh, what we, was a short-term bullish view in Europe and, and how close we were getting to the time to turn bearish. So very exciting that we now have turned bearish again. So um, Giles, can you just talk us through, I guess, the rationale um, around the timing and, and the change in that view? Yeah, well, I always take flattery over going first, to be honest with you, Imogen, so thanks very much. Um, yeah, so last week we went... Um, we, we, we went short buns, as you say, and, you know, followers of the pod, podcast will know that we've been kind of, you know, just sort of waiting for the moment, really, for you know, several weeks. And um, you know, I think last week we figured that a few things were coming together to, uh, to, to really you know, go back and focus on the long term themes, which we've always said were pointing in a bearish direction. And you know, just to, to repeat a few of the points, I mean, I think clearly, you know, the the recovery story is strong, right? I mean, we always said it was a story to go with and it is tracking pretty well. I mean, we've had strong data this week across the board, uh, you know, PMIs and investment intentions, retail sales, those sorts of things, all, all 
pointing in the right direction. COVID trends also going in the right direction. Um, you know, one of the things that we were commenting this morning is that vaccines, you know, they, they really are on the same kind of track as the US and the UK. Um, you know, again, that's some, a point that we've really been insisting on over the last several months and it, you know, not really you know, having a lot of traction. I mean, it seems like, you know, people you know, uh, blinded by the by the headlines to a certain extent there. and um, obviously you know the US and the UK were faster out of the blocks but I mean 30 so some, I think we're still talking about 70 percent as the sort of threshold of vaccination for the adult population um, you know being on track for you know mid late July and in in Europe you know it's pretty much the same sort of track elsewhere to be honest with you I mean so so there's not a big dif differentiation theme, we would say there. And I think we all, we, we, you know, so I guess that just means that we ought to have every bit as much confidence overall that, you know, this, the COVID is controlled in, in Europe um, and you know, lockdowns are going to end. Firms and consumers actually genuinely can believe in this recovery. And, you know, so I think that just means that this summer's discussions in Europe are also going to be about inflation and tapering. It's not just going to be a US, UK kind of discussion. So now with that background, um, as I say, but the, the, we had our sights set on you know, higher rates. But as you know, we were worried about what the ECB was doing with its sort of surge purchases and you know, concerned that that might be a flow that you just can't fight. And now, if I told you back in March that the ECB would be buying something like 160 billion of bonds in April, you'd have probably been worried about a squeeze too. But now, actually, last month we we trended a little bit higher in yields over over the month, and so the lesson that you would take from that is actually you can fight the ECB. And you know, if you think about it sectorally, it's not that hard to kind of rationalise ex post about how that happens. I mean, just to give you an idea, you know, the ECB bought, as I said, 160 billion, but primary supply was like 222, 220, that sort of range. And, and foreigners were ongoing sellers, insurance and pensions probably aren't doing that much. And banks, well, I mean, we don't really know that much, but I suspect that they're not that bothered about duration at the very least. And so, you know, although there's a strong underlying bid for, for spread and, you know, that you can see in, in anything you know, sort of around the kind of, you know, the crossover area. Um, I don't think that they're all that worried about duration. So, you know, as I say, as we the debate shifts towards European tapering, as I think it certainly will, you know, the prospect of a buyer strike is pretty real. And you know, we want to be the right side of that in terms of timing. So you mentioned European tapering. Um, can you clarify then whether that means that you think a the ECB stepped down this kind of significant pace of purchases in June. You know, they set this out for the next quarter in the March meeting. And, and obviously the focus of the June meeting will be about whether this significant pace continues. So do we think that um, steps down? And then B, I guess, beyond that, uh, obviously there's, you know, still a few months to go before we need to really start thinking about this. But do we expect PEP to end on the planned timeline of, March next year? Well, I mean, I, my answers are basically yes and yes. I mean, I think that in, in June, it'll be obvious enough that the recovery is on a pretty solid footing and you know, it's right not to fight against the, you know, the market's desire to, you know, to price in um, a little bit more of recovery in quite such an aggressive fashion back in, in March when you know, reasonably enough, the, the ECB was worried about 
higher rates kind of reflecting global factors that didn't obviously correspond to um, you know, what was happening on the ground in Europe. And I, and I think that, that will have completely changed. So, so yes, I think we'll probably end up going back towards a pace of purchases, which will be more in line with what we had in, in the first quarter. And I think that the messaging will be around you know, a pace which maintains that sort of that that glide path into stopping pep around uh, the end of the first quarter next year as was always the intention okay so as I say yes tapering <laughs> so it does happen in Europe too um so <laughs> the other question that I had then was around I guess how we uh see our bearish view on the curve I suppose you know we spoke last week um with John about how they had also gone bearish in the US, but that was much more focused on the five-year point of the curve um, and they kind of see potential for, for bearish flattening. Um, what? How do we see the curve shape in Europe from here? You know, we, we've had steepness on. Do we still think steepness is, is the right way to play this? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that... Um... Now, a key difference between Europe and um, the US and UK will still be that rate hikes are still quite a long way in the future, um, you know, considerably further than in, um, in in the US and the UK. And so I think that the, the real event is tapering of quantitative easing, and that obviously has an impact further, or it should have an impact further along along the curve, you know, all the way out to the long end, uh, much less at the front end. So I think that we are absolutely going to stay in a steepening, you know, a, a bearish steepening type paradigm. And, and if you think that we're going to flick to a, a bullish, sorry, a, a bearish flattening sort of dynamic as we did in, in, in the US already. Uh, that, I, I can't see that happening soon. You know, and there are some other factors, I mean, that I could talk about at length about risk premium and things like that, but that's the basic thinking here. So yeah, you know, definitely think that we're, we are in a steepening environment here as we sell off. Okay, and if we're thinking about, you know, uh, an ECB tapering, albeit just in the very near term, a step down from, you know, a, a step up in the purchases. So back to kind of Q1 levels. And we've, uh, you know, now have our reinstated our kind of long-term bearish view looking for, for positive fund yields. How do we marry that with a more positive periphery view? Do we still have that, that positive periphery view? And, and how can we kind of justify that in the face of ECB tapering and a, a bearish core rates view? Yeah, well, I mean, we haven't changed our, our view as uh, as well. You know, we are we're still positive on periphery, and um, now it's not it's not a view that's working especially well, to be honest with you. The last couple of weeks, I have to accept that. I mean, you know, I think that you, know, you can see in in other areas of credit that there is still you know, pretty strong demand for for anything a little bit spready, and you know, I, I, I guess that the the story that we you know, still think stacks up basically is that i mean well in the background you've got positive politics now you've got the ecb which you know, even if it's not sort of at its absolute maximum setting it's still going to be super positive for you know, super supportive for for um, public finances and obviously rates are low and so you know it's not an environment where you obviously have to be worrying about debt sustainability but you know we're only really talking about tapering here in the context of stronger 
economic growth. And you know, if you put the you know, if you put tapering versus stronger economic growth, you've got you know, factors pushing in different directions for for spreads. And you no, know, I mean, given that tapering is a consequence of the growth, you know, it makes sense, I suppose, to to to, to say that um, you know the the better economic outlook should actually be more positive for for spreads. So that's the way we're playing it. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll see that you start to play out in the next few weeks. So. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for joining me this week and we will catch up again next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bondcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to get future episodes and like it as this will help others to find it. We also encourage you to follow us on social media to get all our latest content. Speak to you again soon.